Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. I want to speak to you today about the power of contrition. You know, contrition is the attitude of humility and remorse that arrives after a person has done a grievous wrong. And you see this in kids all the time, right? Where one young kid hits another young kid, and then one child starts to cry, but then the assaulting child also starts to cry. And as an adult, you feel very sad for them both. And you want to offer comfort to them both because the wounded child needs love, but also there is a contrite wounding child uh, that needs a word of affirmation and love too. You know, contrition is the emotion we hope to see when adults apologize. And we don't see that all the time. It's one of the ways that we can kind of sniff out a fake apology is whether there's actually a sense of contrition going on behind the scenes. And, you know, uh, contrition is um, something that when you do see it and you can acknowledge it, it, it really does melt your heart. Uh, and it does uh, transport you from a place of being wronged to being maybe even sympathetic. And what's fascinating, I think, is that when uh, honest and true and visible contrition is available to people uh, in the middle of an apology, uh, contrition opens the door for reconciliation. If anything, you know, genuine uh, contrition is effective. You know, here's an example in my own life. You know, once early in our marriage, I made a pretty significant financial mistake. You know, we were young, we were broke, we were newly married, we had a lot of student debt to pay off, and I accidentally double paid our student loan payments for the month. And our loan obligations went from taking up about a quarter of our monthly expenses. In one month, they took up about half of our monthly expenses. Uh, And after some envelope math and figuring it all out, I recognized that because of my financial mistake, we would have to cut back on everything that month. There are no social engagements, no restaurants, no Amazon orders, no beer, no ice cream runs, no date nights. In fact, for us to even just break even for the month, I was going to have to reduce our monthly grocery bill by about 20 or 30%. And so uh, to get us through the month uh, in the black, I could only cook the cheapest meals in the cookbook, as it were. And so... When I sat down and explained all this to Beth, I was honest about my mistake, and I told her how genuinely stupid I felt. Um, I knew that this mistake would impact our lives together for the next four weeks, and how it really was unfair of me to put all that on her. And so I asked her forgiveness, and frankly, I was expecting anger and resentment uh, because, you know, we're still young. We're getting on our financial feet as it was, and You know, it's not like we had a lot of fun money to play with, but Beth's response was one of grace and understanding. No problem, she said. It happens. I'll rearrange my social calendar to meet in some free places. And, you know, Brian, you're a good cook. You always make good dinners regardless of what ingredients you use. So, yeah, I understand. It happens. 
you know, Beth figured things out pretty quickly. Um, she noticed my real embarrassment. She noticed my contrition, and she met my contrition with love. You know, I had wronged her, and she understood, and she accepted my apologetic and contrite heart anyway. And so, you know, it was about 28 days worth of no-frills family life together, but, you know, that was six or seven years ago, and this thing that could have really impacted us in a significant way, it's barely a relationship, a blip on our relationship radar. And so a little contrition can help a marriage along. A lot of contrition can save a broken relationship. And today we're going to see just how contrition is going to save Joseph's family in our reading from Genesis. And it's not just going to save this family from the seven years worth of famine that's destroying the ancient world right now. Uh, this contrition is going to save uh, Joseph's brothers from his own wrath for the events that took place in the past. And so, you know, in our reading at this point, we've been following Joseph now for weeks, and Joseph is now the grand vizier of Egypt. He's this grand poobah. He's second in command to the pharaoh himself. And Joseph uh, has been reconnecting with the brothers who sought to destroy him 20 years earlier when they sold him into slavery. Joseph, he recognizes his brothers when they come to Egypt looking to buy food in the middle of the famine, but Joseph's brothers don't recognize him. I mean, it's been 20 years. And you see these brothers, they were forced to make one trip to Egypt to buy grain. And by the time we get to our reading today, they've eaten all that grain up together on their first trip. So now they return to Egypt on a second trip to buy grain. And with each trip the brothers take, Joseph is torn, and you can see he's torn from his actions. Should he treat them well because of their family, or should he treat them as enemies because of the sins they committed two decades prior selling him into slavery? Should he rescue them from this famine that is going to be seven years long, or maybe he should let them go for an empty stomach on a little while as a season of punishment uh, for what he had to endure? And so as Joseph is trying to figure out how to navigate this and periodically breaking down weeping in the midst of it, because it's a lot of emotions here. As Joseph is figuring all this out, he sets up a number of tests before his brothers to see if anything has changed about their demeanor since they last met. So at one point he accuses them of being spies and says, I'm going to uh, keep your brother hostage until you can prove you're not spies. But then he gives them grain for free. He doesn't make them pay for the grain. And then he actually invites them in for a lunch at his place, a big lunch on the government tab. He invites them to sit down for lunch uh, one day on the second trip. But then while they're all seated at the table and they're all eating, the youngest brother among them, uh, Benjamin, uh, he's the favorite, um, he gets a massive portion of food, five times more than the other brothers, which is a callback to see how Joseph's brothers are going to treat this new favorite because of the way they treated the old favorite, Joseph, uh, those decades prior. And so in our reading today, we come across uh, Joseph's masterstroke, his coup de grace, his final test, what's going to uh, put into context whether or not these brothers have changed, whether or not these brothers are, are deserving of any help. Um, and this test is going to involve a silver cup. And as the brothers load up their grain to go home, Joseph commands his servants to plant his special cup, a very valuable silver chalice, in the youngest brother's bag. This is Benjamin, the special child, uh, his 12, the youngest of them all. And uh, Joseph wants to know, what are the brothers going to do after two decades if the father's favorite son is once again taken away? 
That's the question Joseph wants to know. If something bad happens to, to Benjamin, uh, how will his brothers respond? And, well, we read about it in the reading, didn't we? The cup is planted. Um, Joseph's Egyptian servants chase down the travelers, and they accuse them of theft, and the cup is discovered in Benjamin's feed sack. And the brothers, they tear their clothes in despair. That's an ancient way of, of um, showing uh, contrition in some ways, but also uh, terror and fear and anguish is to, to just tear your clothes, rip the buttons off, and, and hulk out, you know? And as they are led back to face Joseph, this time looking very much like thieves caught in the act of stealing, caught red-handed with a cup, um, this final test comes together. Joseph lays down the law with his brothers, knowing the cup was a plant, but pushing his brothers anyway. What does he say? Joseph said, What deed is this you have done? And do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah, one of the brothers, said, what shall we say, my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But Joseph said, Far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. And so Joseph here, he sets up a situation where every, even though every one of, of the brothers offered to go into slavery as punishment, Joseph says, no need. I'll only take Benjamin, the one with the cup. I'll take him as a slave. You guys can go home. And in doing so, he's once again taking this, this, this one child away from the family. He's putting pressure on the great unhealed womb of his family's history, and he is not letting go. Um, he is giving his brothers every chance to throw Benjamin under the bus, and so the question presents itself, will Joseph's brothers abandon Benjamin like they abandoned Joseph 20 years ago? And here's what makes Benjamin such an important character to, to fill everyone in here. In this crazy mixed up family, you see, Benjamin is not just the youngest son, number 12 of 12. In this wild polygamous family with one husband, two wives, two concubines, 12 sons, and one daughter, Benjamin... Uh, was uh, shared the same mother as Joseph. So while a lot of these brothers are kind of half-brothers in, in the marriage, Benjamin and Joseph have the same mother and the same father. And so, so Joseph has a unique interest in Benjamin and also making sure that Benjamin's loved and taken care of because, well, he wasn't by his, his half-brothers. And so, um, you know, their mother died giving birth to Benjamin, and that's something that's a big deal too because... Uh, their father loved their mother, uh, that he had a soft spot in his heart for um, their mother named Rachel. And, uh, and, and when she died, uh, it was like a, a, an unhealed wound uh, in, his, in, in the father, in their father, in Benjamin and Joseph's father, Isaac. And so Benjamin, you see, is a connection uh, to his father's deceased wife. But Benjamin is also a connection uh, to the lost son, uh, Joseph, who has been missing now for 20 years. And so Joseph, so for Benjamin, right, he represents all of the love and all of the care that this family's father has for anyone or anything. Everything that, that Jacob, the, the father, the patriarch of this family, loved and, and adored about life, he found in the person of Benjamin. 
And so for Benjamin to be singled out as the new slave of the Grand Vizier of Egypt, well, that right there would be enough to make anybody upset, but certainly it would be enough to just uh, absolutely kill their father-in-law. It would, it would destroy him. And so our reading picks up uh, with Judah, um, another one of the 12 brothers, explaining why that is. That's what a lot of our reading today is Judah's speech. And I want to read you the concluding lines of uh, Judah's speech to Joseph. For your servant, Judah, became a pledge for the safety of the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain of the boy instead of the servant. Excuse me. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant, my lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. So Judah, here, he steps forward and says, Take me instead of Benjamin, because my father has seen enough grief in his life. And if Benjamin can't go back to him, he'll surely die. This man has lost the wife he loves. This man has lost one of his sons. And if we don't take Benjamin back, it will absolutely crush him. And so please let me trade with him. Um, in some sense, you can say Judah says, you know, help me save two lives. Help me save the life of, of Benjamin, um, who is lost and enslaved in your courts. But also help me save the life of your father, our father, who will certainly die of grief if Benjamin doesn't come home. Now, this is a remarkable change in the family over 20 years, isn't it? It's a, it's a remarkable change. Um, these were the brothers who worked together to try and kill and get rid of the favored brother two decades before. But now there's a new favored brother, and they're willing to uh, swap places with him when the little brother's life is in danger. And Judah steps forward and offers himself in place of Benjamin. Nobody was willing to do that 20 years ago to rescue Joseph. Things are different now. His brothers, through two decades of watching the grief they caused their father, and through two decades of guilt and shame and deception, they realize that they're terrible people, and they actually show in this act a moment of contrition. It's better for one of them to become a slave of Egypt, it's better for all of them to become a slave in Egypt, uh, than for their father or Benjamin to suffer any further offense because of what they've done in the past. And so Judah volunteers as a substitute out of love for the youngest and most beloved son of the father. And here's what happens. Then Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud. So the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Joseph is weeping so loud that the neighbors down the street hear him. And after the room is cleared, Joseph offers his brother greetings right in his birth name. They know him as Zaphonath Paneah, the, the Grand Vizier of Egypt, but Joseph, the son of Jacob, is now revealed. He can no longer hold it back. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And it's Judah's contrition, his act of contrition here, that really opens the gate. It's Judah's contrition that brings the truth on the table for everyone to see uh, what is present. And so for the first time in 20 years, you see, um, these 12 brothers now all occupy the same room once again. 
and, and so the contrition of Judah brings about the reconciliation that had been lost. Because of Judah's willingness to lay down his own life for the sake of the favored son, Joseph says, things are different. I can reveal myself and we can be a family again. And so while the other 11 brothers don't know it, right? Um, the, the, the entire family, this is like a, a tribe of 80 people in total, all of them are going to be saved from this famine and from the wrath of Joseph because of their contrition, uh, because they recognize uh, that some of this is being brought upon them by how they treated Joseph in the past. And I, I mean, there's a lot of power in this. There's a lot of power in simply owning our mistakes and acknowledging our remorse. For Judah, in our reading, it will be the catalyst that saves his family from starvation. And so if, if contrition has this kind of power to save families and reunite um, tragically parted brothers, I wonder what it might do for you. I wonder what contrition might do for you. You know, this is the first Sunday of Lent, the church season where we get back to practice our contrition. And we started our service off today with the Decalogue, right? The Ten Commandments. And each time we recited a commandment, our response was, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. And today we're going to be praying a set of prayers called the Great Litany, which is a set of prayers set aside for moments when we feel contrite or when we desire to feel contrite. And we even have the great psalm we recite every Ash Wednesday, Psalm 51, and we say it on Good Friday too, Psalm 51. Uh, they remind us that the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Um, that's from Psalm 51. And so I want to leave you with this thought. Do you have a relationship in your life that isn't what it used to be? Um, is there relational tension? Is there a struggle between you and someone uh, in your life? Uh, is there someone you've had a falling out with? And if the love of God is any model for us and the love of Joseph is any model, uh, we would go a long way to restoring that relationship if we adopted an attitude of contrition. Because, just, again, con contrition, despite its lowly stature, is an attitude of great and abiding power. And I've seen the power of contrition in the workplace. You know, I've seen moments where employees have made huge mistakes and they immediately fess up and they come to their boss hat in hand and they say, boss, I messed up. Everything's gone to pot and it's my fault. And, and it's fascinating because the manager or the boss will immediately skip over the castigation and the blaming and the anger phase. And they will straight go straight to the cleanup, problem solving mode, work with the employee, square it all together again mode. Um, I shared a couple of weeks back or maybe a month or so back in one of the bonus podcast episodes about how I, at a previous job, wrecked the company truck at, at, at work um, and how grateful I was that there was a team that I went to and I could go to them hat in hand and they covered for me in the midst of a difficult season. You know, my bosses gave me grace and a part of it was, you know, I came to them hat in hand and said, I did something wrong and it's going to cost us money. And I'm not sure how to move forward, and I need some help here. Uh, and, uh, well, they gave me the help I needed. And, you know, um, and as I was thinking about contrition, too, I, I thought about it in the political realm. So many of our uh, political speeches and apologies are hollow. They ring hollow. And um, they're terrible. But there's a couple of them that stand out and have stood the test of time to look back at and say, you know, this person actually feels like 
they may be genuinely sorry for what they did and how they screwed up. Um, one of those is um, I rewatched in preparation for this uh, uh, sermon. I rewatched portions of Ronald Reagan's televised address in 1987, where he confessed to the nation that, though his head and his heart said otherwise, the facts and the evidence were that his administration had indeed engaged in a deal of trading arms for hostages, which was not legal. And you know his political opponents, because he was such so so genuinely able to to talk about his failure as the president, his political opponents called him the Teflon president, because no scandal ever seemed to stick, no criticism ever seemed to stick, and part of it was due to Ronald Reagan's uh, genuine contrition, especially regarding the Iran Contra affair. And to make it balanced, you know, I didn't just pull the Republican. You know, I rewatched. Uh, Bill Clinton's famous prayer breakfast address in 1998, where he publicly says, I have sinned after the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. And indeed, in his apology, Bill Clinton even references this same psalm that we just mentioned, Psalm 51. And he says, you know, part of really expressing uh, contrition uh, and being sorry is offering forward a broken spirit after his extramarital affair which is to say that the public gen general, uh, the public tends, or at least historically has, I don't know if they still do it in the internet age, um, the public uh, tends to acknowledge to true contrition when leaders mess up and, and they, they, they receive it, they give it. Um, and I've seen it work too between parents and their adult children. You know, I once heard a therapist joke that her entire profession would be phased out of existence if parents were simply able to say, I'm sorry to their children. And that applies to, of course, the in-the-moment I'm-sorry's from the day-to-day when the kids are little while they're growing up. But it also those apologies also apply, said this therapist, to um, things done in hindsight and recognized in hindsight. 20 and 30 years down the road after the matter, uh, has, after the matter in question, an act of apology brings this immediate relief to relational strain. And so... If it works for Joseph and it works with the politicians and it works in marriages and with parents and children and with bosses and employees, um, the big takeaway this morning, I think, is not so much that you should be more contrite, of, although I think it's generally a helpful place to be, um, but I, I think the bigger takeaway this morning is that this is not just something that we do pragmatically to make our life better, but this is generally the attitude of God. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so don't avoid the heavens because you have some long-standing relational tension that feels too powerful to overcome. And do not avoid the gifts of God because you're afraid of a divine smiting. Uh, more than animal sacrifices of the Old Testament, more than becoming a missionary in the New Testament, more than going to church on Sunday, more than reading your Bible, saying your prayers, uh, more than giving a tithe, more than helping old ladies cross the street. A contrite heart is exactly the thing that God wants from you. And so as we begin our Lenten season in earnest, I want to ask you, do you have a relational tension between you and God? Are you feeling distant? Or is the relationship feeling dry? Or is there otherwise, uh, are you otherwise missing a spiritual connection? If that's you this morning, you know, try a little contrition. Uh, to borrow some language from our confession, open up to God about the, the wrongs you've done and the rights you've left undone and see what comes of it. Uh, Lord knows that a little love and grace and acceptance from the heavens 
in light of our failures and foibles will go a long way for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Ligonier, Pennsylvania.